When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Tom and Ed Russell were already successful solo artists when they finally decided to spend a couple of weeks in a cottage making music together in 2015. With Tom's background in techno as Truss and Ed's in dubstep as Tesla, the Welsh brothers joined forces to release their first project as Overmono, the Arla One EP, in 2016 on their dream label, XL Recordings. For the past seven years, Overmono have dropped EPs and singles, teasing diehards with what their inaugural full-length project might sound like, all the while collaborating with acts such as Joy Orbison and remixing the likes of Fortet. So you know, their breakbeat-infused 2021 breakout single quickly became a dance floor staple. Now performing it at clubs and festival stages around the world, including both weekends at Coachella last month and upcoming appearances at Primavera Sound Barcelona and Madrid, they're ready to take the next step. So You Know is one of the 13 songs featured on their debut album, Good Lies, due out this Friday. It's a record that integrates vocal-heavy samples and hazy synths, reconfiguring them into evocative yet club-ready tunes, vaguely reminiscent of 80s and 90s rave music. The nebulousness of each track is intentional, rousing feelings of romance, happiness, nostalgia, or melancholy, depending on your perspective. For a taste of the album, the faders Ariel Lan Lajard spoke to the ascendant dance music duo about their GABA bootlegging rings, sampling, and how the live experience informs their sound. How was your tour and how was Coachella? The tour was great. It was like the most enjoyable tour I've done so far for me personally, I think. Definitely. We've done one tour in America before that was was really good, but this felt, I don't know, this just felt like a different thing. And the like people that were turning out to the shows was crazy. And then Coachella, like we'd, honestly, we'd heard so many like horror stories about Coachella, about, you know, like UK people going over and playing to like 200 people or something. And we were like, oh, like, I don't know, just kind of bracing ourselves, just thinking like this does happen. It could it could happen. So let's just go and see what it's like. And then we got there and it was packed and it was great. So yeah, I feel pretty pleased. How how many people do you think were in the Coachella crowd? Oh, so difficult to tell. It looked like it was full to the back. From where we were standing anyway. <laughs> Might have looked different from the back. I hear that like weekend one is all the influencers and weekend two is like all the music lovers. Is that true? Yeah, definitely. Weekend one, I don't know who it was, but someone arrived like 10 minutes before our set with the henchest looking Doberman I've ever seen in my life. It had had two collars on saying, do not pet. And like this, like honestly, it looked like it had been to the gym. I've never seen so many people where you're like, oh, that's, that's so-and-so. And they're like, oh no, it's not. I don't know who it is. They just look like they should be famous. I've never seen so many like attractive, like perfectly presented people in my life. 
I only wanted to go this year because of Frank Ocean, but I'm kind of glad I didn't. We didn't see him, but I watched it on YouTube and like I thought parts of it were really good. Like it wasn't clear, it wasn't what it was supposed to be, but his singing was unreal. Yeah, it was crazy. The only thing was that there's just these like, like weirdly long pauses between each track, which obviously then kind of like fucks up the whole flow of the set. But I guess that was just like technical issues or whatever but I actually thought it was quite good obviously I guess it was a different experience if you've been waiting there for an hour and a half we were there in, earlier in the day and apparently there was people like like getting to the stage at like 2pm and basically like camping out for the whole day waiting for him to come on and it was hot like it was insanely hot we feel anxious enough as it is before like most people do I guess but before you go on stage you feel pretty anxious but I think if you started seeing people camping out like 8 hours before your set I think that would just crank stuff up too much yeah when you're anxious before a set like what is your ritual to relax and make sure that everything you feel good before going on our sound engineer anna got us into doing one minute planks that really helps actually it's about five minutes before we're due to go on ed and i will get down and do a one minute plank and if people haven't seen it before they're usually just really weirded out by it um, but it does massively help us. Yeah, it kind of just gets the blood flowing and just gets you like in the zone. I, I often find that before shows, I think it's like a weird defense mechanism from your body, but your body kind of goes into like shutdown because it's like, no, I'll just make you feel like really weird and tired to just like weird you out or whatever. So doing that just snaps you out of it and then you just, you feel great and you go on. So that's, our, that's definitely our, our ritual. I'm curious because... Okay, I love the album. I've been listening to it. It's been getting me through this mini heartbreak. I feel like since the pandemic, there's been a need for like very danceable, like rave tracks. But in juxtaposition, a lot of the people who are getting big tracks are like very evocative and emotional. And I think that shows a lot in your music. So I'm wondering what your hypothesis of like why people are craving this kind of like sentimental music. I think since the pandemic, there's definitely been, everyone's missed a, like a sense of human connection. And so any music that makes you feel more connected to people, I think is probably going to make you, you know, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit harder than it might have done before. For us, I guess, I don't know, I don't think we often feel like we're making particularly sentimental music, but then when we listen back to it, we can, it, it, it feels like that. But I think at the time, it's we're always like trying to find this kind of emotional place when we're writing music that neither of us can quite pin down. It feels like it's maybe between like a few different things. And often when we're working on tracks, we'll feel like the emotion of the music kind of goes too far in one direction. And then we feel like we'll kind of pull it back into this like slight sort of middle ground a little bit. I think the music that we're always drawn to the most is music that you could listen to on depending on how you're feeling that day, you could hear the same song in like, in a different way. And I think that's something we're always not necessarily consciously aiming towards in the studio, but it's always what we, I think it's over the years of making music, we kind of realise, oh, that's what we're always gravitating towards is that kind of in-between state of emotions when you're not sure if you're laughing or crying or both at the same time or whatever. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think there's a space between like different emotions that we're always drawn to. And it's only really in hindsight, having talked about it recently that we've sort of cottoned on to the fact that that's what we're generally drawn towards when we're writing music and when we're listening to music as well our favorite artists like ed said you know have this ability to make music where you know it's a bit ambiguous in terms of what the emotional statement i guess of the music is and yeah it, depending on the environment you're listening to it your your state of mind at the time it can mean different things and i really like that sort of ability for music to be able to to flip you know, and you can perceive it in different ways. 
at different times. I'd also say there's definitely times where we do think like, oh no, like we really want to push into that thing. Like with like Baby, for example, we had like the chords and everything written and we were trying them on a bunch of different synths and they're all like sounding good, but we couldn't like really feel like get the emotion out of it. And then we played it on this one like Japanese synth that we've got that just sounds like super, it's kind of sounds like drunk and sad at the same time. And it's just got that like real like woozy bendiness to it and as soon as we played that we were like oh that's it and that we knew with that one we wanted to like really you know like something you'd hear on a big sound system and yeah it'd be quite like powerful kind of emotion that is it's getting across i mean like i feel like it's always hard to pick one but do you even have like a favorite track on the album I reckon I've got one. I'll probably do as well, actually. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you mine and then you can tell me yours. So it's like, not like you're choosing between your babies. Well, also first, are all the samples cleared? Yes. Okay. Because cold-blooded, the Kendora hook is, I was just like, these guys listen to Baby Mother? Like, that's crazy. That's my favorite one. I've been listening to it and crying to it. Uh, Kendora's vocals are unbelievable. Like, she's got such a knack of just writing unbelievable hooks and just this like incredible tone to her voice yeah incredible for me my favorite track is Arla Fern largely because the bass line from it Tom wrote about 10 years ago and I've been telling him ever since that it's the best thing that he's ever written and we finally put it in a tune <laughs> so I feel I feel sort of vindicated that I've got that in into something that we've done and also I just like Tom Tom did the switch up at the end of it where it kind of changes tempo and goes into like a 170 melodic kind of bit. And Tom did that. And I remember when he sent it over to me, I was just like, oh man, this is great. I love this. And he sent it over to me as like its own individual tune. And I was like, oh, I reckon this has just got to be the ending of Arla Fern and just um, flip that round. I think for me, Good Lies is my favourite track. When Ed sent the demo over, so Ed has just unbelievable ability to spot a vocal sample in a way that I don't know many people that can do that i certainly can't and he sent over this demo and uh instantly you know one of those tracks he put on is just like oh that's killer that's killer and it for me it felt like the start of a new path that we could start exploring as over mono like it had this pop sensibility that we hadn't really explored before but whilst also remaining within our sort of our sound world it felt like one of our tracks but much more accessible maybe i've always liked the idea of starting to make some music which could be appreciated by a wider circle of people than maybe the people that have reached in the past and i felt like this track in particular had all the ingredients of of that type of track and i felt like that was the first track that we had that i was just like that's got to be a core part of the album samples did you see that uh the so you know sample recently like went viral on twitter no that one's that that was passed me by that's probably for the best she she's got an incredible voice as well abby like 
yeah, she has a, a crazy voice. She sent us a voice note being like, oh, I'm the singer that you saw for that thing. And I was like, I was sent back straight away being like, oh my God, I can hear it so much in your voice. <laughs> Are you planning on collaborating with them again? We've never recorded a vocal, I don't think, or not intentionally. We recorded some bits for Good Lies in a hotel room with Smurz. I think it wasn't much that ended up getting used on the, on the finished thing, which is a shame because she recorded some amazing stuff. Uh, we just couldn't get the kind of sound of it quite as we wanted it. Um, but we've never really recorded anyone before. And I think we, we're always, we're drawn really heavily to samples. There's a sort of audio, like a sonic quality to, to samples that is just, I don't know, something in it that we both just really into it's kind of very difficult to get i think when you record a vocal but i think with sampling as well you're able to kind of reach in to other people's kind of someone else might have, have expressed an emotion in a very like confident manner for example that we wouldn't have felt as comfortable doing but you but because they've already done that and you feel like you can sample it from them it feels like you can kind of like take a bit of that and it's it's a really freeing feeling i think just like you know, lyrics that maybe are like really, really overt. You maybe you sampled like a, a like a big like pop ballad or something, but you think, oh, okay, well, can we like recontextualize this in a way that feels true to us? And I think if we were recording a vocal for a track like that, we would go down a different route. I think it's definitely something we're going to explore at some point, but for the time being, I think sampling. When you're sampling something, you really approach it very differently from a mental point of view in terms of the way that you'll treat the vocal and chop it, process it and stuff, as opposed to like if you just recorded a verse, written a verse and recorded it. I think with sampling, it's a little bit more, for us anyway, a little bit more carefree in the way that we approach it. artists that you think are like holy grail samplers i love the way that they can like make a tune sound totally different liam howlett was like he was one of the first people that i was like holy shit liam howlett from the prodigy i didn't realize for years that the sort of like little distorted synth line on voodoo people was a guitar riff from like a nirvana tune there's a lot of amazingly creative sampling in a lot of old prodigy tracks kanye obviously is like an insane sampler Pete Joyo as well, you know, the way that he samples vocals is just so kind of unique to him. You can always spot a Pete track by the way that he's processed a, a vocal. What is it about a vocal that like really draws you to it? Is it just something that you know, you know, or like when you hear something, I think I want to use this in some way? It's tone more than anything else. Like we're always attracted to the tone of the vocal. We, we both know it when we hear it. We're both on a very, very almost identical wavelength when it comes to like hunting for vocals whether it's male female or whichever genre we're always like pretty much always in agreement when it comes in when we hear that tone i'm a bit of a sample nerd so I'll, I'll kind of like go and find out like what samples we used on what tunes and then you know and you kind of you listen to the original track and then it gets to the bit where it plays the sample and you're like oh my god it feels like it's just like jumped out of the speakers at me it's like it's so obvious 
I feel like we get that quite a lot when we're, we're, we're like hunting for vocals where we'll suddenly be like, oh, that's it. That's the sample there. Let's get that. And then, but it's, it's kind of, we just spend a lot of like late nights trawling the internet looking for things that we want to sample basically, which is like, honestly, it's one of the most enjoyable parts of making music, I think, just hanging out, listening to loads of tunes and then being, you know, finding something that's just suddenly like, oh my God, yeah, that. And maybe we'd written a chord progression the day before or something and you suddenly you see, you sort of join the dots between it. How much time do you dedicate to like crate digging? I feel like you're touring, you make music when you're on the road. How do you balance all of this this stuff? Constantly spinning plates, but like we're always making music, you know. We're on the road now, we've learned to just have to make music on our laptops, but that's great now. We could be in hotel rooms, back of vans on the way to gigs. And then, you know, we're always, always making tunes. And, and you know, if, if you don't feel like making a tune, then maybe just go on to Bandcamp and search for things you know you can you could be really geo-specific on Bandcamp now about like a genre a particular genre in a particular place so you can search for what's going on in the lo-fi trap scene in Nottingham Bandcamp will be like oh well here you go probably not very much but like there's there's going to be a few artists and you can it's quite interesting going on deep dives like that yeah I like a lot of the album was was written after shows in hotel rooms together kind of like probably like lying on a bed together or whatever with a laptop and just like making tracks and or coming up with ideas and that sort of thing a lot of it was because before we had been really like sort of studio based we're still like heavily studio based or whatever but we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how we could bottle up the sort of sounds of our studio and kind of get it all into the laptop so we could just make music wherever we are and then and so that was what we did a lot of last year and it was great because we were in like loads of different places all the time you come off finish you just finished a show and then you're like oh we've got an idea for this we'll go and do that and then maybe the next day we'd like hire a studio i heard you've been well i've been reading all your interviews and you've been talking about this album since like 2017 so what happened since then yes we've always thought like you know we want to do a long form you know, over mono, when, when, when it first started coming together that like, okay, we were going to do this project, you know, we'd, we'd been writing music for a little bit and then we were discussing stuff with XL and we signed with them. And at that point we were like, yeah, we want to do an album, but we never really set out like a time frame, And we sort of felt as time went on that we had a lot to say before committing to an album. Like we really wanted to sort of like, almost like in the right to do an album, like set out our, our world, like our sonic world, and then do an album that is hopefully like a, a bit of a, a like a, a summary of of the journey so far that ties all the all the bits together. Yeah, it's it's nice because it it feels like we definitely could have done the album like last year or the year before, but then we ended up releasing a lot of the music as like EPs and stuff, which which I'm really glad that we did. It's nice, even though the album, I think. For us, if yeah, like Tom was saying, it does feel like a kind of putting together everything that we've done to this point, but nearly all new music. But it, it feels like for us, it feels like it's just the beginning of the project in a way. It feels like okay, right now we've done an album and like we're already talking and thinking about what we're doing. You know, we're already writing a lot of a lot more music. I was expecting, I think we both were, to finish the album and be like, all right, I'm done. Let's like take some time off or whatever. But it's been the opposite. We kind of finished the album and it's like, all right, yeah like loads of ideas and everything it's just it's just great
Sometimes P artists are like, I want listeners to hear it live and that's how I want them to experience it. Some artists are like, listen to it while like walking and like looking at the skyline. Is there any way that you envision your fans to like consume the album to its best ability? In the car. I don't drive. So what do I do? <laughs> um, it, get an Uber. No. Um, Maybe on transport in general, but like we always sort of test our stuff out in the car from a, not just from a mixed down point of view, but like from just a vibe point of view. If it works in the car sonically and also making us feel like how we want it to feel, make us feel, then we know the track's done. Yeah. If you're driving around like late at night and you've got it on and you're just like, you can, it, it's like a, weird clarity that you get and you kind of if it if it if it fits that mood then you know that it's right and if it doesn't then you're like it normally just gets gets scrapped or or we change it but normally just ends up getting binned but also from a mix down point of view like the car is invaluable we went to an amazing studio with joe Orbison and um the most expensive gear that any of us i think have ever made music on and we wrote blind date and we were all like yeah like it sounds great on these like 200 grand speakers whatever blah, blah, blah. and then mixed it down on this like insane ssl desk and everything and then we got in the car we were like all right let's go and test it out in tom's car and we went and sat in the car and put it on and within 10 seconds we all just looked around and we're like no it's not right well i know you uh your dad was like a french horn player so you come from a musical family but what exactly drew you to electronic music I think for me, it was just something I'd never heard before. It was so alien. I'd, I'd started listening to a bit of metal, first of all, uh, when I was like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, along with then a bit of hip hop, NWA and stuff like that. And that all was like really inspiring. And like, but it wasn't until I heard like some UK hardcore when I was about 11 or something. I was just like, whoa, what is this? You know, it was like the repetitiveness of it the just I'd never heard sounds like it and and the moment I heard then like a year or two later I heard like a, a gabba kick drum just going boom 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 over and over again it was like the most obnoxious thing I'd ever heard and I was just like I'm, I'm in love I'm sold was that at like a show no no this was just like we were back home because we, we grew up in like a reasonably rural area of Wales and there wasn't anything going on other than you know like people passing around tapes and it was like a friend's older brother who started getting these tapes and he started then giving them them to us and then we were just like obsessively trying to track down more and more tapes and they're all recordings of recording of a recording and all really bad quality but it was like it was just a magic for us you know because we didn't know where this music had come from or anything about it other than it just sounded completely different to anything we'd ever heard before for me it was just i could just hear the just music coming out of Tom's room and it like the door would always be closed. I could always hear him like doing his weights, knocking about in the room and then just hearing this like mad music just sort of like pounding out through the walls of our dad's house. And I was just like, oh, this is, this is crazy. I want to get into this. So I was, I started like pinching records from his room and yeah, I, I fully got into it. Ed's like the youngest person I've ever, I think I've ever known to get turntables. He, he bought some turntables when he was 10 years old. Actually, to get the money to buy the turntables, I'd gone into Tom's room and stolen a load of other stuff from his room. And I set up a market stall in a car park selling stuff. And then Tom came down and was like, oh, look, I'll, I'll show some support. He's like trying to earn some money. And he came down and was like, 
oh, you motherfucker, you've just nicked all my stuff from my room. It's like all these CDs and things. <laughs> and um, so anyway, I did that, made enough money to buy some turntables and then they didn't arrive. And I was like really gutted that they hadn't arrived. And so Tom called up the company that I bought them from and he was like, look, he's 10. He's been sitting in all day waiting for these turntables to arrive. They haven't arrived. And, the, and they were like, oh, they're not going to be there for another few days. And Tom was like, well, can you like, sort of mountain can you upgrade him and i think they he uh, managed to upgrade me from a behringer mixer to a newmark mixer so i was i was pretty i think i've gone from a two channel mixer to a four channel mixer not that I had anything to do with the other two channels but i remember feeling pretty stoked they had a four channel mixer and it just looked hench and i had like some more effects on it i was like yeah sick do you have other siblings yeah we've got a sister older or younger she's in the middle are you close to her as well yeah super close yeah she came out to the new york show actually she was at brooklyn steel she flew over just for it. It was, it was really nice. She comes to like all of our shows and yeah, even flew out to New York for that one. And yeah, she, she's great. Talking about live sets, I know something that brought you together was like the Surgeon and Ali Wade AV set at Cafe Auto. Describe what that experience was like. If I wanted to picture myself in that room, like why was it so formative for what you sought out to do with Overmono? I think in, in hindsight, we'd been feeling a little bit sort of penned in with our solo careers for, for a, a little while. And then we went to this gig and there was something about like this barrage of like noise and sonics that Surgeons is really, really good at. And he was doing this like quite experimental thing. We both came out of there feeling like completely sort of cleansed, I guess. And, and, and they had this sort of clarity and we were walking back to the car and we were just like, why don't we hire a cottage and take a load of gear down there and spend a few days making music without any preconceptions about what type of music we want to make or what we want to do with it. Just go and have fun. And it was as simple as that, really. Yeah, it's kind of like a sort of sonic lobotomy. Just walking out, just feeling like really clear headed and like... I don't, we, we never intended to do anything that was like, I guess, like musically representative of what like Tony had been playing or Ali Wade had been playing, but it was just a kind of, I don't know, that kind of moment of clarity that you get after things like that. It almost, it, was, it felt a bit like meditation or something weirdly. Not that, not that I've ever done meditation. It sounds like I know what I'm talking about. But um, so, but that was, it was a kind of like, oh yeah, let's go and, let's go and just have some fun and see, see if we come up with anything. And we, and I don't, like, we've never written more music in a, such a short amount of time, I don't think, as we did during that trip. Did that set inform the way that you curate your, like, your live experience at all? No, I don't think so. It's quite different to what, what we do. That was like a seated, really enjoyable, just like wash of sort of sensory. Yeah, just bathing in this sound. Yeah, it was pretty pretty intense in parts and like really amazing it was like yeah you could just get fully immersed in it and like ed said it was like some sort of like sonic lobotomy but in a in a very positive sense <laughs> we both felt afterwards you know like that it, there were so many more avenues that we could explore and that we should just go and have fun making music because it seemed like ages since we'd we'd done that you know we'd stepped in it seemed like ages since we stepped into the studio and felt like there was this like, infinite world of possibilities. And, you know, that was that was something that was really excited us to to explore that again. Like I said, without any preconceptions about like, we'd never had any plans at that point to start a project. It was just literally just to have a few days writing music together because we'd never really written music together before, weirdly, apart from like Christmas time at mum's place and seeing who could come up with the 
tonkiest kick drum or silliest bass line and stuff like that. You know, it was it was just one of those things. We're just like, oh yeah, why is it taking us all this time to try and you know make some music together? What do you want people to like feel when they experience your live sets? It's sort of strangely something that I've I've never like thought about, but I, I guess the the thing for us that is amazing doing the live show is the kind of like having that uh, like shared experience and having and I remember like for me that's always the thing that I enjoy the most when you go and see something it's just that collective thing and you're crowd of loads of people and everyone's experiencing the same feeling at the same time so I guess what people are feeling is maybe not as important as just everyone feeling the same thing at the same time I think that's a really amazing thing and something that is our is like a, you know a massive motivation with doing the live show is having that feeling and, it, and for us we feel like we're part of it as well when, when we're doing the show that's really nice yeah i feel like with a dj set you're playing off the room right it's about reading what people are wanting but with a live set you're setting the tone do you feel like pressure in that sense or like that you have to be in a certain mindset to be able to like deliver this whole experience that everyone like should be consuming or like want you want them to consume i don't think we feel pressure so much as sort of it's exciting to be able to present our music in the way that sort of the ultimate way that we want it to be presented you know we have absolute control over like the visual aspect and the lighting and the the, the general tone and atmosphere of the room as much as we can anyway you know and then be able to present our music in a way that as a collection of of tracks on a loud sound system you know in the way that we've always envisaged it to be played if that makes sense I think as well, it's that thing of like when you, you know, you might maybe one one show and you'll like, you'll really nail the breakdown of a particular tune and you're like, you just get that like real rush of like, oh my God, yeah, we've like, and almost to the point of like, oh, we should have done that in the recorded version. And that's a really amazing feeling when you just have that thing of being like, like it's, it's normally like me turning around to Tom when he's like on one of his synths doing something during the breakdown and I'll just be like, yeah, 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 that's it, that's it, that's it. Like, keep going with that. And that's that's just like such a nice feeling when you like, you feel like you've kind of elevated the tracks. And you'll meet me being like, what? What are you saying? <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no, just keep going, keep going, keep going. Are you communicating a lot during the other sets or like you, you're in the zone and doing your own thing for the most part? It's a bit of both, you know, like if we're about to bring in like the drums or whatever, I always have to have Tom to count me in because whenever I try and count us in, I start from five, like I'm doing like a rocket launch or something. So I'll be like, all right, five, four, three. And then I'm like, oh shit, no, music works in fours, not in fives. So I always have, to, Tom's always the one who has to be like, all right, four, three, two, one. And then we'll like come in with like the bass or whatever. So that I'm always like, I'm always turning around to Tom being like, right, can you count me in? Because I, I, I get so lost it's so weird in the studio ed has no problem with this sort of stuff with like you know like time signatures or, or or whatever but as soon as we get on stage it goes out the window and he's just completely completely lost well there's not much left but i actually am curious we're, we're talking about visuals when did the doberman aspect come into play i think it was like was it 2019 three years ago we've been chatting to Rollo Jackson a lot uh, over the years and we'd always wanted to do something together and we'd often just chat when we'd meet up about ideas for things and he's got like such an amazing eye like his the stuff that he he shoots is just incredible so it's got like such a beautiful look to it um, and then 
it was a kind of yeah conversation between the three of us and um william aspen from xl and between everyone we uh decided to to kind of do the first shoot which ended up being in the car park of bromley football club in uh, which was just down the road from our studio and and that was the kind of, yeah that sort of set it all in motion basically yeah I, I was reading that like you liked the ambiguity that the Dobermans gave to the project and how they're often stereotyped. And I'm wondering if you feel like there are any misconceptions about your project or even like maybe about the dance music scene in general as it grows. Because I know it's up 34% from last year of the growth of electronic music. I don't know if there's any misconceptions about our music necessarily. Not that I'm aware of anyway, but maybe. I think the dogs, they've been misrepresented for a long time. You know, we, we had a vet come up to us after a show in Manchester at Warehouse Project. And she's just like, I just want to say thank you so much for just showing Dobermans in their natural form because no one ever sees them like that. Like we have people ask us all the time, like, oh, what the dogs are you uh, in your videos and we're like oh the Dobermans now like, really I thought they had like spiky ears and duck tails whatever like no no it's just what people do to them to make them look evil as the scene grows what do you think about the misconceptions about dance music or what do you think people who get into the scene I know like even with uh as we talked about before like the Fortet set closing out Coachella it's only going to get bigger what do you hope for people in the mainstream to know about it as they start to get into the music more I think it's just a, it's really nice to see that different forms of dance music are uh, having a moment or, you know, are, are seeping into the mainstream. I guess after EDM, people are maybe finding different things that they're now into. And I think I think it's just a generally exciting time for, for dance music, you know, with like lots of different directions it could go in. And it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years you know how that pans out mm, i think it's quite different in the uk and the us like we the uk never really had its like edm moment like it was it was never like a a massive thing here as far as i'm aware like not not to the level it was in the states so i think in the states having that like have the sort of edm bubble bursting was it's kind of we're starting to see now where all of that like debris is landing and it's nice that it's it's landing in for, for for what I can see anyway, areas where it feels like there's a bit more um, more things coming through and getting uh, having a spotlight shone on them that maybe come from a more like authentic place than a lot of the EDM stuff did. But at the same time, like say what you like about the EDM guys, but those guys know how to mix down a tune. So you don't agree with the All My Homies Hate Skrillex documentary? It's a really good little video that, but I, I mean, like Skrillex is an insane producer. And so it would have been cool if Dubstep could have carried on for a bit before it like mutated, because I think there was a lot of really interesting ground still left to be to be like explored before it just sort of exploded into what it became. But at the same time, I'd never like hold that against the producers that were pushing that side of things forward. I think it's kind of cool that like someone like Skrillex comes through and makes tunes that genuinely at the time didn't sound like anything else. I think like if you're doing stuff that doesn't sound like anything else, it doesn't matter what it is and like respect to that. Well, I guess the last question I have about the album is like, this is your debut what do you hope new people and fans learn about you through good lies i hope it's a it's a way of us reaching even more people i always like the idea of trying to reach as many people as possible with the music that we make and if we can have this as like uh, a way of, of reaching a whole new 
audience, that'd be amazing and it'd be an, intro- an introduction to our sound. I think there's very few times as a, like someone who makes music where you, it feels like you get a sort of fresh start in a way. And I feel like one of the kind of exciting things about more people discovering you is that, you know, the album will probably, to a lot of people, will be the first thing they've heard from us. And for me, the album is the it's the kind of most complete version of, of what we've been doing over the last few years. So that's a really nice feeling, thinking, oh, everyone, people are going to be, you know, we, spent, we, we worked on the album for a long time. It's nice that that is going to be a lot of people's first impressions of us. And that's, like we're saying, that's a big part of, I think, why it just feels like the like the beginning. I think the nice thing about doing stuff as over mono is it always feels like getting in the studio now is is always fresh and exciting. I always feel like we can just do pretty much whatever we want. And that's something that I feel really privileged to be in that position. You know, that, that's sort of what I always dreamt of, of having when I get in the studio is having that freedom to explore whatever avenue I want. that reminded me you once said that you didn't expect to have musical careers so what were you doing before music really took off <laughs> luckily doing music but it's like it was one of those things i guess growing up and getting into djing and then into producing it's not like i ever at any point thought oh i'm gonna you know be a dj or be a producer it, it was a dream but i just didn't expect it to happen it was always one of those things I'd, i was going to work at but i didn't really think that you know realistically it would happen tom spent quite a lot of time working in a freezer i was in university studying music tech and i had a job on the side working in a a warehouse freezer it was like minus 50 and you had to like put on this big suit and then your eyelids would start freezing together you'd have to like open them up and you're only allowed to work 20 minutes at a time in there but I quite quite enjoyed it because you got all these breaks. <laughs> well you've had both pretty successful careers separately what in your in the Overmano era of the time like did you know like this is like different and this I feel like is bigger than I even expected it to be was there a particular moment in time or like experience that you remember feeling like that? I think Gala Festival um, that we did, that was the first festival we did after the pandemic. And we'd spent the whole pandemic just like making music. We released quite a lot of music during it, but you have no idea like really if like anyone's listening to it or like if it's, you know, if people are into it or whatever. And we'd been playing shows and stuff before the pandemic and it was all, it was all cool. But then we came after the pandemic and did Gala and suddenly the crowd was much bigger than, anything we had done before and everyone knew all of the music and stuff and it was that kind of like oh shit people have been listening to this like during that time that was I think for us was a big realization uh, or like that was the moment where you're like oh hang on like something's changed and that was like it's still for me like my probably like like, the most enjoyable gig that we've ever done because it was just such an unbelievable feeling as well because everyone had just been locked inside for two years simultaneously the most enjoyable gig that i've ever done and also the most i've ever needed a piss in my life 
me and Ed were like so nervous going on because we'd it was the first gig back in like two years and we were just necking beers and within about five minutes of starting the set I was just like oh fuck I really 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 need a piss and I think Ed was the same and by the end we were just both sort of like on tiptoes just <laughs> bobbing up and down and um yeah the sense of relief afterwards so you don't you never <laughs> stop in the middle of your set to go be no because otherwise otherwise it'd be like if tom goes then we lose all the synths so you'll just be like me on the drums for like a few minutes or whatever which you know that was Overmono talking to the faders ariel lana lajard Overmono's new album good lies drops this friday may 12 via xl recordings the Fader interview is engineered by Tony D'Ambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfman. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphone. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.